Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm chapter 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of God. Am I on? Oh, there we go. Good morning, family of God. That's better. I heard you the first time, but now you can hear me. By the way, hello to everybody who is at home sick and uh, who is at home in the cold. I will tell you that it's 15 degrees warmer in here than last week, plus we got hot chocolate. Plus there's 700 people in here, and two of the things I just said were true, so I'm going to let you find out later this week. Uh, Today we're going to study Psalm chapter 11. And this is a psalm that bears witness to the fact that sometimes in life, we don't just find ourselves in trouble, we find ourselves in double trouble. Everybody say double trouble. This is a psalm about double trouble. The psalm is traditionally attributed to David, and we don't know what the details are of what was going on in David's life, but... The psalm itself makes clear he was in double trouble. The first trouble that he was in was bad circumstances. He was in a bad situation. And the second trouble that he was in is that in the midst of his bad circumstances, he got some bad advice. Has anybody noticed that sometimes in your life things are going really bad and you're going through what Christians call trials and tribulations? These are those moments that can make you or break you. They can make your family stronger or rip your family apart. They can help you grow closer to God or you might run away from God. And it really matters how you respond. But sometimes when you're trying to get your heart right and trying to do what's right, lots of people come to give you terrible advice. (laughs) Tell you to do stuff that you shouldn't do. That's what I think is happening in the first three verses of this text. David says, in the Lord I take refuge. That's where you're supposed to be, right? God is our strength. God's our protection. He keeps us safe. And then he says, how can you say to my soul? And then we got quotation marks. The next two and a half verses are in quotation marks. We're not told who is speaking. But whoever it is, they're saying some bad counsel. Some foolish counsel. It may be that the words in quotation marks, some or all of them, are David's own thoughts. Who knows that sometimes the most tempting voices are the ones that are in your own head? And those are the hardest ones to turn off, too. If that's the case, then this is one of many psalms that reminds us you got to talk to yourself. you got to examine your own heart and then speak God's truth into your heart and your situation instead of letting those negative scripts take over. 
It may be that the words in quotation marks are the taunts of David's enemies. You have no hope. Just give up now. Sometimes we got to tune out demonic lies. we got to tune out discouragement that comes from the world. But many biblical scholars think, and I agree, that probably the best way to understand these words in quotation marks is that this is counsel that's coming from David's own advisors, friendly advisors, people who like him, people who are on his side. Because sometimes even well-intentioned people who care about you can speak to you in a way that they've got your best interests at heart, sort of, but their, their own counsel is not centered on God. And that's what is probably happening right here. What do they say? They say, flee like a bird to your mountain. Run away. They're saying, live by fear, not by faith. Now, there are some situations of danger in which it's a good idea to get out of the way. If you're walking down the street and a car's coming at you, step out of the way, right? David himself, at many times in his life, strategically retreats. But whatever the circumstances of this psalm, it's clear that they're calling him to live by fear to preserve himself over against what he believes is the call of God on his life. Okay? Courage does not mean running into danger or staying in harm's way foolishly, but it does mean when God calls us to do something, when God calls us to obey or to stand up for what's right, we've got to be willing to do that even if it's risky and difficult. So they're telling him to leave his assignment from God and run away. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Preserve yourself. Look out for number one. Go take care of yourself. Four, verse two, the, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to, shout in, uh, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Now, throughout this psalm, we see two categories of people called the wicked and the righteous. Everybody say the wicked. And here we find the wicked, they're hiding in the dark. They're deceitful. They're sneaky. Maybe it's talking about physical arrows that they're shooting at David. A lot of people were actually trying to kill him. Or maybe it's talking about malicious words, slanderous speech like arrows that they're shooting at him. But either way, there's people that are trying to kill him. And then verse 3 raises this question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's no quotation marks in the Hebrew. We've got to guess when does the counsel of these counselors stop. But I think the English Standard Version is probably right to put the quotation marks where they do at the end of verse 3. I think what's happening in verse 3 is that the well-meaning advisors of David are saying to him, listen, society is falling apart. What do you think you and your little friends are going to do to solve the problem? Just get out while you can. We don't know the circumstances. Perhaps this advice comes during that long and difficult period between the time when the prophet Samuel anointed David to be the rightful king of Israel, the future king of Israel, and when David actually took the throne. There was a long period of time between God made it clear that he had a special purpose and destiny for David and when that purpose and destiny was fulfilled. And sometimes a time of waiting between those two things is a time of serious trial, of testing, of struggle that God uses to forge our faith. And you may remember that during that time, David was trying to do what's right, not only by God, but even by King Saul. David tried to serve King Saul. David tried to be loyal to 
King Saul. But King Saul was jealous and he was petty and he was envious and he kept chasing David down and trying to kill him. David ended up leading a band of outlaws like Robin Hood or something. But while they were being outlaws, they were also defending the borders of Israel, keeping Saul safe and keeping Israel safe. He was guarding the inheritance of the Lord that he was going to be king over one day while the king he was trying to serve was trying to kill him. And under Saul's incompetent leadership, the society, the culture was falling apart politically, spiritually, militarily, in every other way. The foundations are destroyed. So it may be that verses 1 through 3 are the advisors of David saying, this little backwards kingdom isn't worth fighting for. Just leave. You, we could go a few miles down the road and set up shop, and within five years, you'd have a kingdom that's five times stronger than Saul's. You don't need to stay on your assignment, but David knew the promise of God and the command of God to stay on assignment and to trust the Lord. Now, we got to ask ourselves the question, how do we stay centered during times of trial and testing? How do we make sure we're walking with God and doing what's right in times of testing? How do we sort out if our friends are giving us good advice or bad advice? After all, Proverbs tells us to go seek advice from wise people. But then if you go seek advice and they tell you the wrong thing, now, now what you going to do, right? So how do, you, how do you sort it out? I'm going to give you a visual demonstration. This will require me to set down my microphone because I don't have a lapel mic on right now. Okay. Kids, we got a few kids in here. Here's what you need to do. Step one. Cover your ears. Here, you ever do this for me? Let's go. We're vi- kinesthetic learning right now. And then step two, look up. <laughs> okay, you got it? First thing you got to do is tune out the world. Tune out all the distractions. Tune out everything. And then you look up. Specifically, you look to the Lord. Everybody say, look to the Lord. Look at verse four. This psalm in Hebrew is divided into two stanzas of equal length. And the break is after verse 3. Verse 4 starts this way. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. When you're in double trouble, you've got bad circumstances and you're getting bad advice. How do you make wise decisions? You look at the throne. You look at the throne and you get centered. When it says the Lord is in his holy temple, it's not talking about Solomon's temple because Solomon hasn't built a temple yet. It's talking about the heavenly temple of which the earthly temple was just a copy. God is in his heavenly temple sitting on a throne. In other words, David says, I'm going to cover my ears. I'm going to tune out all the distracting voices telling me 20 different things I should do. I'm going to tune out the voices telling me to live by fear instead of by faith. And I'm going to fix my attention on the fact that the God who loves me, the God who has always taken care of me, the God who always keeps his promises and has never failed me yet is still on the throne. He's still the king over all creation. What do you see if you look at the throne? The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to how he described it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim are some of these heavenly beings. Every now and then the Bible just throws out words like seraphim and cherubim, reminding that God created all kinds of stuff besides us. He's got all kinds of creatures worshiping him. And listen how it describes the seraphim. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face because even these holy, sinless angels in all of their joy in God's presence, can't, they can't handle looking directly at the throne. God's majesty is too much. With two wings they covered their face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That means God is pure. God is good. There's no one like God. And the whole earth is full of his glory means everywhere you look, the world is filled with the beauty and goodness of God if you just have the eyes to see. And then what? It says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. I thought it was interesting this week. That's a different kind of foundation shaking than Psalm 11.3. In Psalm 11.3, people are saying, be worried about the shaking of the foundations. Israel has fallen apart. You could uh, pick up a newspaper. It doesn't matter if it's a left-leaning newspaper or a right-leaning newspaper. Every newspaper is saying, Western civilization is falling apart. And I'm not necessarily saying they're wrong. There's some crazy stuff going on in the world, right? But the psalm is saying, don't worry about that. Our God has been on the throne while empires and civilizations rise and fall for thousands of years. He's not sweating it. He's not worried about it. And instead of fretting over the question of what can we in our little band do to save civilization, instead look at the throne is what the text is saying. The foundations are shaking here in Isaiah chapter 6, not because civilization is calling apart, but because little old Isaiah is shaking. He's vibrating, not at the voice of God, just one of the seraphim. They can't even look at God, but when they praise God, the thunder of their praises is about to shake up Isaiah. That's the throne. If we had time, we could go to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and see another scene of the throne room. You should meditate on it. You should study it this week. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, not only do we find angelic beings worshiping God, but we find all the Christians who have already died, but they're not dead. They're alive in Christ, and they're with God, gazing at the throne, and they're worshiping the Lord. Some of y'all have some grandmas who are with the Lord around that throne room right now. And some great grandparents. We got some ancestors and missionary heroes. You read their biography. That's where Paul is today. That's where Isaiah is today. That's where all the, peop- all the writers of Scripture and all the ordinary faithful Christians are today. And what they're doing in that throne room, they're filled with joy and they're filled with gladness in the presence of God and they're crying out holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come they're saying worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created and then they're singing to Jesus and they're saying worthy is the lamb who was slain Because you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So the psalmist teaching us, cover your ears. Everybody say, cover your ears. Look up. I can only cover one ear right now, but you get the idea. Sometimes we've got to tune out the world in order to look at the throne. And as you do that, your perspective shifts. Doesn't mean we never get scared, but fear and despair lose their power to control us. Faith and hope rise up in our hearts. There's a joyful confidence when the foundations are shaking. We're just going to obey God. What should the righteous do? The righteous should walk with God and obey God. Sometimes we're going to die like Stephen the martyr. 
Sometimes we're going to walk through the flames and come out unscathed like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sometimes God's going to use us to turn the world upside down. We don't know in advance, but what we do know is how the story ends, and that's with Jesus victorious and us reigning with him in a new creation. So we look at the throne. Now, this raises a question for us. If God is sovereign, and God's on his throne, and he's got all power, like David and Isaiah and the book of Revelation seem to be telling us, why is the world so messed up? Why is God letting us walk through not just trouble, but everybody say, say double trouble. Why is God allowing us to walk through double trouble? Bad circumstances and bad advice like David is facing. The Bible is a book that gives a lot of answers to that question without really ever fully answering everything that we want to know. The Bible's witness to this issue is complicated and complex. We can't talk about all of it right now. But we can get a little hint of one of the things that God is doing on his throne when we're walking through double trouble by just finishing verse 4. It says, His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. You might circle that word test in your Bible or in your bulletin. That's an important word. And the next verse goes on to say, the Lord tests the righteous. That's the title of my sermon. We're going to think about that today. Everybody say, the Lord tests the righteous. Now, I don't know what word comes to, or what image comes to your mind when you hear the word test. Here's what comes to my mind. When I hear the word test, I think of rows of desks. And there's kids sitting on those desks. And there's a piece of paper on them with little bubbles to fill in. And they got a number two pencil. And they're stressed. They're sweating. Drops of blood, right? I'm trying to go to college one day. Right? And they're trying to fill it in. And trying to remember everything they studied or praying, Jesus, I know I didn't study, but you love me. You say you never leave me or forsake me. Right? And they all stress. And then I'm, I'm a grown man. I've been out of that for a long time. And we still wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, I forgot there's a test today. Right? Having dreams about those tests. It's stressful. We don't usually think, oh good, the Lord tests the righteous. <laughs> That's not the kind of test this is talking about. We got a little cultural difference. This was written 3,000 years ago in Hebrew on the other side of the world. Okay, And Willem van Gimmeren uh, explains what the word means here. The verb test or examine denotes the activity of the smith in the process of purifying silver. It's not talking about filling in bubbles on a piece of paper. So if you got a silver ring on your finger or a silver necklace, probably the way that you got that is you went to the store and you handed them some cash or a credit card or whatever, and you bought that. And you didn't think about how did this come to be. But in David's time, if somebody wants silver, first you got to go into a cave or go underground somewhere and mine that silver. You got to go get the silver ore. So take your hammer and your pickaxe and you go get it out. But when you get it out, it doesn't come out looking like that ring or that necklace. It's a big hunk of something with a little bit of shiny, sparkly something in it. So then you take it to the silversmith and the silversmith heats up the furnace extra, extra, extra hot, really, really hot. And then it puts this big hunk of something with a little sparkle in it into the extra, extra, extra hot furnace heat, into the crucible. And 
What happens in the heat is that everything that's consumable gets consumed. And all the dross rises to the surface so you can skim it off. Everything that's consumable gets consumed in that heat, but what's left is pure. It's strong. So you may put a big old bowling ball size mixed rock that's worthless into that fire, but what you get is a tennis ball of pure precious metal. Hear what I'm saying? That's the kind of testing it's talking about. What is the Lord doing on his throne? Why is he allowing David to go through double trouble? Why does he allow us to go through trouble in our life? Well, there's many answers to that question, many things that we could say. But what David's saying right now is God is sitting on his throne and he's testing the children of man. God is a holy fire. He's a holy fire of perfect love and justice. And all of us are going to walk through the fire. Now, what the psalm goes on to describe is that the Lord's holy fire has different effects on those two groups of people we talked about earlier, called the righteous and the wicked. We met the wicked in verse 2. Remember them? They were shooting at the righteous in the dark. And we met the righteous in verse 3. Remember, they were asking, what do we do when the foundations of society are crumbling? The Bible uses these terms a lot. The wicked are people that rebel against God. They hurt and oppress other people. They live by lies and deceit, and ultimately their actions will destroy themselves. Who are the righteous? The righteous are people that trust in the Lord. They walk in integrity. They don't just pay lip service to God, but they live lives of integrity that honor the Lord. The righteous are people who live by truth, and they bring God's life and blessing into the world. God's testing, according to this psalm, consumes the wicked and purifies the righteous. But the Bible causes us to pause before we too quickly sort the world out into richest, wicked folks and righteous folks. I mean, we could think about all the times that Jesus tears into the Pharisees because they were really sure that they were righteous and they were really wrong. Okay? The Bible causes us to pause. As a matter of fact, we might start thinking about verses like Psalm 143, verse 2 in which the psalmist prays this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, O Lord, for no one living is righteous before you. Now, according to that verse, if we sort the world into the wicked and the righteous, everybody on the wicked side. Or we could look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, which says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This should cause us to pause. See, if we want to look at somebody, look at one of our enemies, look at somebody that we don't like and say they're wicked, God reminds us they're made in the image of God. There's good in them. If we want to look at ourselves and our clan and people in our tribe and say we're righteous, the Bible reminds us there's sin in us. We still need grace. In fact, the Christian writer Peter Kreeft said, the world is full of saints who know they are sinners and sinners who think they are saints. That's what life is like in this world. So what, what are we supposed to make of this? Well, as we keep reading the scriptures and trying to piece it together, we get further light. And what the New Testament makes clear to us is that there ultimately is only one righteous one. And his name is Jesus. Now, if you think I'm making this up, just because I'm supposed to talk about Jesus, go look at Acts chapter 7. Go look at Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 7, you'll find Stephen, the first Christian martyr, preaching the gospel. And in the course of his sermon, he will talk about the righteous one. And he's talking about Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 22, 
You're going to find Paul telling his testimony, how he was a sinner persecuting the church of God, and then God transformed him and gave him new life through the singular righteous one. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one, and if we are in Christ, everybody say, in Christ, then we are counted righteous by grace. Not because of all the good works that we've done, but because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and came back to life. That's what Romans 3, 23 through 24 is all about when it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, counted righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if we put that together, what does it mean? Each of us has to ask ourselves the question, do we want to be among the wicked who are consumed for our sin, or do we want to be among the righteous who are purified and enter into God's joy forever? Which one sounds better? And, and here's what it says. It humbles us and says, guess what? Your performance isn't going to get you in that category. If you get what you deserve, you're going to be consumed by the holy fire. But God in His grace and love has come near to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. And now he says, anybody who trusts in me turns from their sin to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now they're counted righteous in Jesus Christ by grace. To reject the grace and the authority of Jesus Christ is to hold on to our sins and be consumed with them. But to accept Jesus Christ, to turn from sin and trust in him, is to allow God to count our sins as paid in full on the cross and to save us so that we're purified by his holy love instead of consumed by him. Now verse 5 makes it clear that passing through this fire has a different effect on the wicked and on the righteous. Makes it clear. And the second half of verse 5 should cause us to pause. The Lord tests the righteous. That's That's the title of my sermon. But then it says, But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now that should cause us to pause. Because doesn't God love the wicked? Now I spent lots of weeks back in December trying to convince you that God does love the wicked. And I didn't just make that up. I could quote Bible verses for you. You could quote Bible verses to this point. The most famous verse in the whole Bible. John chapter 3 verse 16. You know what it says. For God so what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if you go study John's gospel, the world in John's gospel means precisely the wicked. It means the rebellious, sinful world that is unregenerate, that is living apart from the grace of God. Okay? So, in other words, we got some passages of scripture, lots of them, telling us God loves the wicked, and then we got passages like this one saying God hates the wicked. So now... How do you put both of those things together? Does the Bible contradict itself? Answer, no. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was confronted with this question after he was making a long biblical and theological argument that God loves everybody, which is true. Everybody say, God loves everybody. And what about all these scriptures that say God hates the wicked, things like that? And Aquinas made this simple little statement. Nothing prevents one and the same thing being loved under one aspect while it is hated under another. Now, let me try to explain what that means through a simple, silly illustration, and then we can get serious, okay? You could, if you wanted to, bring me breakfast twice this week. As a matter of fact, you might as well test this experiment, you know what I'm saying? You could bring me breakfast. Tomorrow morning, you could show up at my house, and you could give me a 
a good big breakfast. It's got five fried eggs, good and buttered too. Four thick pieces of bacon. A few thick sausage patties. A heaping plate of double fried hash browns. Five flaky biscuits smothered with your grandma's secret country gravy recipe. Okay? You could bring that all over to my house with a half gallon of dark black coffee. And I will love that meal. And then later in the day, I'm going to hate that meal. I'm going to love how it tastes. I'm going to enjoy eating it. But even before I'm done with that third biscuit, it's going to be destroying the insides of me, right? It's going to be causing me pain. I love it and I hate it. And then the next morning, you could bring me a totally different breakfast on Tuesday. You could bring me a nice bowl of oatmeal with no brown sugar, no butter, nothing, just, just the oats. And a little cup of Greek yogurt. No, this is not vanilla Greek yogurt. There's no strawberries in it. It's plain Greek yogurt. It tastes like sour cream, except for it's not on a potato or anything. It's just Greek yogurt, right? And then with that, you could just, for good measure, give me a kale salad. Spritz a little lemon on it, okay? And eat that. Now, guess what? I'm going to hate that breakfast. But I'm also going to love that breakfast, right? One, in the first case, I love how it tastes, but I hate what it does to me. In the second case, I love what it does to me and hate how it tastes, right? You can love and hate the same object under different aspects. The, the cliche that Christians say God loves the sinner and hates the sin is true, but then we just need to go ahead and add the sin is part of the sinner. So with myself, I love myself and I hate my sin, don't you? I've got impulses inside of me that I don't like. And God loves you. You're made in his image. He created you. But if there's evil in your heart and life, he hates that. And what we've got to face is the reality. That's part of us. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying is this. God wants to separate your sins from you and put the sins over there on the cross. Okay? So if I'm going to hold on to my sin, then I'm going to get consumed alongside it. But if I say, I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ, my sin is cast far away and it's consumed on the cross of Jesus. He takes my punishment for me. But it causes us to get awakened to the fact that sin is serious, okay? If we think we can minimize evil, we better think again. And it's warning us here, when God comes with all of his grace and love and holiness and justice, if we're trying to hold on to evil, that's not going to be good for us. Because he will not allow evil people to hold the world hostage forever. But on the other hand, there's this first statement, which I'm trying to get you to hear as good news. Everybody say, the Lord tests the righteous. We could compare this, for example, to Proverbs 17.3, which says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. What it's trying to say is this. If you walk with God, the same adversity that might mean destruction for the wicked means transformation and liberation for you. That's what it's saying. We need to say that again. Everybody listen up. Are you going through some adversity, somebody? Think about this. If you're not, you probably will be. Next week, right? When trials and tribulations and adversities come our way, the same adversity that might mean destruction for the wicked, for those who humbly walk with God, confessing their sins and depending on Jesus, depending on His grace, for them what it means is transformation and liberation. God loves you enough not only to forgive your sins, 
but to call you out of your sins into righteousness. Listen, sin is just another word for evil. As a pastor, I've multiple times had people ask, multiple different people ask me the question, man, if I'm forgiven by grace, why wouldn't I just have fun sinning? If I'm going to go to heaven anyway, and I'll just say to you, probably all of us have thought that thought at various times, but if you're thinking that thought, that means you're already being blinded and confused by your sin. What you're saying is this, if Jesus is able to forgive sins, why wouldn't I keep living like a fool? Why wouldn't I keep practicing evil so that I could destroy my life and hurt other people? That doesn't make any sense, does it? See, the devil likes to convince us that sin... I'm about to knock stuff over on this day. The devil likes to convince us that sin is the good stuff and righteousness is the boring stuff. But the exact opposite is true. Sin is when you take something good that God has made that is good because it's a little bit like him and you twist it and you take it outside of God's boundaries and you twist it so much that actually getting it is going to destroy you. And the devil wants to say that'll keep you happy. But what God wants to say is not only do I want to forgive you of your sin, but I want to save you from being a fool who destroys your life and hurts other people. I want to purify you. I want to make you like pure silver, pure gold. What's it going to look like when you're done? If the Lord tests the righteous and you walk with Jesus through the trials and tribulations, what's it going to look like? Well, we get our clue from verse 7. Look again at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. And he loves righteousness. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his faith. His face, excuse me. This verse gives us hints of two things that are going to happen to us when we're done walking with Jesus through the fire. If you walk with Jesus, one way or another, you do come out unscathed like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. On the other side of that fire, first of all, you're going to be a person who walks in righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of these words that gets a bad rap in our day. We can't hear righteousness without thinking about self-righteousness. So most of us, when we hear righteous, we think boring religious people, right? Or stuck-up prideful people. That is not what righteousness is. Righteousness in the Bible, a person who walks in righteousness, is a person who knows the living God. And they're so centered in God that there's a deep wellspring of peace in their souls. And when you get around them, that peace just spills over into your life. Every time you get around them, there's blessing and there's joy and there's life from you. Sometimes when you get around really righteous people, it exposes your sin, but not in a way that makes you feel ashamed, in a way that makes you want to be the best version of yourself. When you hang around a really righteous person, you want more of that. As a matter of fact, if you want to be encouraged today, here's what the text is saying. If God is allowing you to walk through trouble or double trouble or triple trouble, he has a purpose for that. And part of the purpose is he's making you more and more like Jesus, which doesn't make you less yourself. It makes you more yourself. Okay? By the time you're done, you may look a lot different than you are right now, but it's going to be the real you. As a matter of fact, I want you to think about this thought. Okay? Think about this thought. If you today could meet you when God's done purifying you, you would think that's the most amazing person I've ever met. I want to spend more time with that person. I feel so alive when I'm with them. Man, I'm nothing like that person. I need to get mentored by that person. God's making you that person. Sometimes you need double trouble or triple trouble to do it. But God's making you that person. But the, the best part, the best news, which goes with this news is, what is God doing to us in the furnace? 
He's preparing us to be the people who shall see His face. What does it mean? It means you're going to behold the Lord and enjoy an intimacy with God which is beyond anything you've ever imagined. Here's another way to say the same thing. Every desire of your heart will be fulfilled. That's what it means you'll see God. Every desire of your heart will be fulfilled. Now I know that there's people in the room that are having a hard time understanding how that means that. How could that be true? You may even be saying, Pastor, you don't know about all the desires in my heart. I showed up here today because I'm trying to get back on the right path, but I've got some desires in my heart. I want to be famous. I want to have a life of adventure doing whatever I want. I got all sorts of sexual fantasies you don't know about. That's not a desire to God for God, you might be thinking. But what I'm actually saying is, yes, it is. St. Augustine famously said, that man who, driven by his lusts, goes and knocks on the door of the brothel to satisfy his own lusts at the expense of another is searching for God. That's what took him to the door. He's looking for life in the place of death. But what he's trying to get at is this. Every desire that you have is a kernel of desire for some truth, some goodness, some beauty, something that is God itself. And you may have buried it under so much filth that you can't even recognize it yet. But down in your soul, you were made for God. And, and the devil can't really get you to desire something that is not in itself desirable. So he takes good stuff and he twists it and he perverts it so it will destroy us. But down deep, everything inside of you is made to be satisfied with God. Now, if you're living in sin, we get so spiritually blind that you can't see this. It doesn't feel like you're desiring God. And you just got accepted by faith. But Christians who have been walking with God will tell you the more you walk in obedience, the more you realize God actually is everything I need. He actually is what I'm longing for. Verse 7 should make us think of the Beatitudes of Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What we're saying is, by grace, Jesus died on the cross and rose again, so you can not only be forgiven by your sins, but so that when you walk with Jesus through the difficulties and adversity of life, you'll become a person who is transformed into the person you would want to hang out with, the person you would want to admire and follow, and into a person who loves and knows God and finds ultimate perfect satisfaction in Him. Now, today I want to end by asking you to ponder a few questions. We need to think about the fact that over the last couple years, everybody who lives on this planet has gone through some trials and tribulations, right? We've gone through some adversities. We've experienced testing. And we need to ask ourselves, what is God up to? Some of you have also gone through some particular adversities in your own life. And I want you to ask yourself, actually what I want you to do is ask God. God, what are you up to in my life? God's testing, when He tests the righteous, that's not an act of judgment for the righteous, it's an act of grace. And that test simultaneously reveals what's inside of you, and it transforms. 
When I say it reveals what's inside of you, I don't mean it gives any new information to God. He already knows what's inside of you, but it gives new information to you. It reveals to you what's inside of you, and it transforms you and purifies you. Life is a lot better if we actively cooperate with that work of God than if we resist it, okay? So I just want to ask you to ask God, what are you trying to show me about myself through all this adversity? God and his love does not want to waste your adversity. How are you trying to transform my character? What is it that you're trying to do to make me more like Jesus through all this? And then we can even think about this not just in an individualistic way, but in a corporate way. If you read through the scriptures, you find not only that God does this refining work in the hearts of individuals, but he does it for Israel. He does it for the church. He does it for all of us. Christ Community Church, have we faced some adversity in the last couple years? Right now, it feels more like a freezer sometimes than it does a furnace. But we go through difficult things. And as we find ourselves walking through difficult things, what immature people do is complain and struggle and get bad attitudes and criticize and lean out. And what mature Christians do is say, how is God trying to forge me through this? And how is he trying to make us a holy community? How is God trying to strip from us perhaps our false idolatrous views of church? It was never about feeling comfortable. It was always about knowing the living God and about, uh, linking arms with disciples of Jesus to say, how can we do the will of God together in the time and place where God has put us? So I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads right now and just say a word of prayer. I'm going to be silent to give you a moment to pray, and then I'm going to pray for you. Kent, you can go ahead and come on up. Victoria, you can come up. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together in a moment. But I want to just be quiet to pray. Ask the Lord, how are you trying to transform me? What are you trying to show me? How are you trying to transform us as a community? Holy Spirit of the living God, we thank you that you are here with us in this place. And Lord, I I know that when I go through adversity, some good stuff gets squeezed out of me and some other stuff. Sometimes I get a bad attitude and complain. And I thank you for bringing those things to the surface so that you can get them out of me. God, because I don't want sin to have any place in my heart. And I just want to ask for your grace right now for us as a community. Thank you so much for giving us the grace to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And I pray now for the grace, Lord, would you make us a holy and righteous people who know the Lord? Would you make us a a people that in times of adversity, instead of complaining or retreating or letting ourselves be driven by fear and anger, criticizing others, turning against each other. Instead of all that, in times of adversity, we would look to the throne.
And we would say, Lord God, we are your people, the sheep of your pastor. We would encourage one another. and We would grow more like Christ. Please do that work with us even today. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.